Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Goals with Jeff. Today I'll be speaking to a man that is very difficult to track down. I had to use a lot of military personnel, so you don't mm. want to know the details, to track this man down. <laughs> I will be speaking to Dr. John Dada, aka Flash, which is an interesting nickname. We'll, yeah. we'll get to find out how he got that nickname. Um, he's a CTO and co-founder of Curacao. And um it's 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 a privilege talking to him also wow. because uh-huh. just last week their fundraising was announced to the tune of three million dollars. Guy, mm-hmm. Guys, I'm getting some money this night. Mm-hmm. So just just mm-hmm. um send me your account number. I'm oh, sorry, send him your account number. Mm-hmm. That was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Send him mm-hmm. your account number right. <laughs> um for you know for your own part of the of the money. I'm just kidding. Um yeah, welcome to Beyond the Code with Jeff. Nice, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's 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 my pleasure. It's my pleasure to host a great man. Mm, even <laughs> though you've exposed me to the public and now I'm probably gonna be, you know. No, I mean, no, it's not, a, it's not, it's not an exposure. I think it's, um, what do we call saying the truth, you know, stating facts? Uh, you know, I don't know going to that. <laughs> Probably complicate things any further. How's it been, man? Oh, man, it's been fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Lagos can be amazing on Saturdays, so. Yeah. It's, uh, did, did you go for any O and Bear? If I did, I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to make it. Mm, that's so true. That's actually true. I had to true. strike him off the list, but uh, it's... I can't rule out having other stuff to do later in the night. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. We are definitely not getting into that. Yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's let's leave it out. Let's let's stay out of that. All right. So yeah, let's 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 meet you. Um, you know, beyond being the city of Curacao, which we're going to talk a lot about. Mm. Um, who is Flash? Or should I say, Doctor John Dada? Which which yeah, which one are we meeting today? Flash. Doctor Flash. Yeah, okay. Who is Doctor Flash? Like, yeah. So let's just say is this um very weird dude. Okay. Yeah, so I grew weird. up being referred to as weird a lot of the time. Oh really? Um full blown geek, full blown nerd, you know, that guy that always had his backpack around mm-hmm. him because okay. he was always with his books. Yeah. Back in school. But one thing people didn't realize was behind the scenes. I loved puzzles. I loved solving problems. Right? That's so, your that's your nerdy. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, 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 what can I say? I thought you wanted to say something different. That's, you're still a nerd. <laughs> of course, like it's okay. being true to your identity. Right? Yeah. Okay. But the interesting thing is, a lot of them wouldn't see you that way. Uh, All they see you as is this dude that is weird, right? Mm. He likes books. He talks about weird stuff, but they forget the fact that when they are not there, there are some crazy things you actually do that would blow their minds if they knew about them. Like solving puzzles. I mean, that's like the same as reading books. No, no, no. So when I meant puzzles, I'm not referring to actual jigsaw puzzles. Okay. Right. So I mean like situations. Hmm. So let me simplify everything I'm saying. Okay. I'm the kind of guy who loves solving problems. Who loves solving problems? I grew up as a kid who was fascinated by the things I saw on TV. Yeah. Um, It's typical example was, I don't know if you ever saw this Japanese show, they used to show years back where they used to let us know the kind of things that Japanese kids were doing with the attack the kind of robots they were making and stuff like that so you used to watch that growing up yes I used to watch that growing up and this drove my fascination to want to try my hands out on things so if there was a problem in the house yeah. like I saw that the socket was bad okay I didn't have to wait for my big brother to go there I would try and get my hands on it even though I end up getting electrocuted in the exactly. process. Exactly. I wanted to ask that. How many times did that happen? Almost every week. <laughs> okay. I mean, one day I blew a fuse in the house and luckily no one knew. I put the wire in there to 
to wow. make the thing stay before my dad found out. Um, but I'm a problem solver. Okay. Uh, problems fascinate me. Interesting. When I see a situation that is complex and people are unable to find their way around it, and it gives me this thing in my brain that's like, okay, dude, hmm. let's get in here and figure out what we can do. And that actually channeled into everything else. All right. So from liking to solve problems, I got to realize that in life, yeah, people actually had these things. Asides the things I wanted to build, aside the things I saw on TV, mm-hmm. I got to realize that, okay, in actual life, there are things that people found it difficult to do. And technology was one way to do that. Like, so, okay, I'm like, I see these kids do things on TV yeah. that solve problems. Then okay. it means I should be able to try something and replicate what they are doing. So from nerd, geek, I became a builder. Aside just blowing up things in the house, joining yeah. wires when I think things are bad, I started trying my hands on making things. I'm like, okay, from so destruction to building. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I went from a destructive problem solver to a destructive builder because in the process of building, I was always blowing things up. <laughs> One moment I'll never forget. I tried to make a submarine. I didn't know what I was thinking. So I just watched this movie where they showed a Russian sub diving underwater, escaping the missiles from the US, you know, torpedoes and all that. And I was like, ah. This thing is a cylinder and it can be submerged underwater. <laughs> All I need is a cylinder <laughs> with a rotor and serious? some electricity and I can put it underwater and it's going to work. So I took a middle tin. I tried to make it airtight as possible. Okay. I placed a propeller in it, in those DC propellers, okay, 12 volts. Yeah. I got a battery pack, placed it inside, did all the wires and all the shit. I placed it and like it's not sinking, but it's moving, right? So I could see it moving in the bowl of water and I'm like... <laughs> This isn't what I want. Very <laughs> good. I I took out the batteries. I was like, I need more juice. I need it to move faster. Yeah. Right? So I took the wires, plugged it in, got a wire, extended it, and I plugged it into the mains. Into the mains? <laughs> yes. So I plugged it into the socket in the oh house. Oh my God. And the moment I flipped down the street. <laughs> oh my God. It was an amazing firework show, man. Like, it was amazing. And I got electrocuted. Yeah, a definitely. Nice one. Nice one. That memory stuck. <laughs> it stuck. Yeah. But did it didn't stop you from trying no, other no, no, no. I, I kept on. I kept on, right? So, so I would say that um, if I were to describe myself, yeah. aside, you know, all the whatever everyone else sees, it's a, I'm a curious problem solver who likes to build stuff. Yeah. Even though in the, in the process, I may end up blowing stuff up. It's, yeah. It's part of it. That's very interesting. It's part of That's it. very interesting. I think that I've met a lot of people with that sort of childhood, you know, mm. like building stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow it kind of always transpires to those people becoming, these people becoming, you know, builders, software yeah. engineers, yeah. like, you know, founders. Yeah. And I think it really translates. Personally, I was this guy that would always rearrange the way the house looked every week. Mm. I didn't like coming back to, like, every week you come back to a house. It's the same thing. Yeah, and so if a visitor comes in my head, I'm like, before he comes back, I want the house to look different. So I always like that expression when visitors come to the house and they say, oh my God, why the TV was here the last time I came. So I'd always give my dad new ideas. Dad, let's wow. move the shelf here. Let's, you know, let's move this here. Let's mm. move that here. And I had this room in the house um, that was for like fixing stuff. So everything that needed to happen, like my dad, you need, needed to polish his shoes. Like every normal childhood, instead of me 
to just take the shoes and go polish them. Mm-hmm. I would ask them to bring it to my workshop. And if you're, and, and then when um, your slippers got done and all of that, because mm-hmm. I had to like sit with cobblers so when learn. they came to, and I learned how they did it. Nice. And then I begged them to help me buy those things. So they bought them. Nice. When we needed to go fix the generator, I would beg the driver to take me. Mm-hmm. So we'd go and I would see how they fix the generators. And I see what things that they, that, that they did. So I know that if a generator isn't starting up, it's a plug issue check the mm. plug you know it's usually a plug issue mm. that, you know there is nothing generating a spark mm. right and if a generator goes off you know you probably have to maybe there's no more engine oil or like you know something it was it was just all of those little things that yeah. and somehow it kind of transpired to you know like me wanting to now build even more things and more things so what was what was the first main thing you ever built mm. Aside all the things that were distracting. Um, let's see. So it's actually a, a game, right? I first made a game. Was it a game? I think I started by some animated movies. I call them movies. Okay. Just as some animations. Uh, so it was a frame by frame animation I did back then. Um, was it was it funny enough? It was a moving submarine for that matter. <laughs> I just realized one that, that was finally moving yeah actually it moved so I animated a submarine yeah. and just did that moving across underwater yeah I think I also tried to simulate like a torpedo going after it something like that I can't remember if I made it blow up but and it, what actually led me into doing that funny enough was the fact that I started out by drawing comics okay oh really yeah. you did that too yeah so as a kid in uh-huh. primary school I used to draw a lot yeah. I used to draw a lot of comics and I was proper net. I'll take it with my chest. <laughs> You're a proper net. What, what can you say? Yeah. And I always look forward to the time where these things could actually become something. Yeah. I mean, yo, we all read Super Strikers, right? And I was like, yeah, this is Super Strikers. I can create mine. So okay. in class, while everyone is talking, I'm drawing comics. While the teacher is teaching, I'm drawing comics. Sometimes oh. I flick them around the class and sometimes I get punished for. Yeah, my mom never heard that stuff. Uh, so f- those comics, yeah. that love for comics actually made me want to make my own animations. No, it's, it's and nice. the real deal was, the only reason I learned tech was because I wanted to make video games. Mm. Yeah, cause, so I love comics. I like video games. I played the Sega Mega Drive to, you know, Modern yeah, Combat. Sega. Yes. And I was like, I gotta make my own games, man. Good old memories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I played Sega as well, Motor Combat. Oh, yeah. yeah Shaka, all of those games. Don't yeah, make me laugh. I did. Interesting. Um, let, let, let's talk a bit about, about Curacao, about the work you did at Curacao. Mm. Um, how did Curacao come about? How? Oh, yeah. um, I, you know, from my research, I read that you started off wanting to build um, a hospital management system. Yeah, Mars, yes. Yeah. Um, and then ended up at Curacao. That's quite a pivot. Mm. How did that happen? You know? So, well, the name has always been Curacao. Okay. Mm. So, the current version of Curacao that is insurance tech okay. was a pivot from health data management. Mm. So, the old idea was um, the electronic or the health system is broken in Nigeria, in Africa. Right? I'm a medical doctor. Yeah. I was in medical school. I went through the training. I could see these problems. Right? But my co-founder, Henry Mascot, he also had first-hand experience with some of the things that could happen when like health systems are broken due to okay. poor data management and all. And like, you know, he had started it along the line mm. and somehow, somehow we got to find out about each other and we connected. And the whole idea was, 
it's very difficult to get your data in a hospital these days. Yeah. Especially if you have to go from hospital to hospital, one reason or the other, your data is missing, they have to bring out records and it's just a mess, right? So let's make this thing digitized. Yeah. Let's make it centralized. So that even if I'm in Eco Hospital today or I'm in Lagoon Hospital tomorrow, exactly. my information or my treatment history is available, you know, all around wherever I need yeah. to get to, right? And while trying to do that, we had just realized that these hospitals don't care. They don't care. They don't care, man. Like no one, all they care about is money. Yeah. They are here to run businesses. They True. need to make sure their bottom lines are working. I, I really think that's that's an entirely different conversation, right? Absolutely. That needs to be had Absolutely. about how um, innovation can only solve problems where you know the parties involved, right, are even interested in, yes. in, in the progress, yes. right? So it, it's not all about like just building fancy tech. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have these gatekeepers that would never allow the tech yeah, to, to thrive. Yeah. Yeah. That's such that's such an important conversation. I, I hope it's had one day. <laughs> no, for real, for yeah. real. Yeah, and to be honest, you actually can't blame them because they run in a very tight economy. Yeah, where the government itself has not been able to sort out the healthcare as an industry as a sector. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. like they need to make ends meet. They need ends to make meet. margins meet. They need to pay doctors. They need to pay staff. They need to pay rent. So we realized that all they cared about was their money. So we're trying to sell them software to make their work more efficient was like talking to you know the mm. wall and we realized that okay one of the things that actually happens in their financial activity is insurance claims mm-hmm. because they have to file insurance claims to the health insurers okay and they have to get paid for those claims yeah and we're like okay this actually seems like a problem because they were doing it on paper on paper so all those claims they had to do they had to file them on paper they write the name of the patient the number the patient has to thumbprint yeah. or sign they have to power them up at the end of the month and they have to send it to the insurer, to health insurer. And the typical hospital is probably working with like, you know, maybe five to 10 HMOs. The big size guys are working with all the HMOs. Yeah. And imagine having to deal with 10 different HMOs or 20 yeah, different HMOs. Exactly. You have to send claims to all of them, organize them. Like that is hard work for yeah. the hospitals. Yeah. Come to the insurers collecting the claims. They have hundreds of hospitals, of hospitals sending them these things every month and when we saw this we were like okay <laughs> yeah there might be something here yeah so you know the typical process right we went to find one insurer that we had a relationship we spoke with them and yeah they were like man we have one they mentioned one hospital <laughs> that, I remember that conversation very well. It was like, oh, we have one particular hospital. Yeah. They send us over a thousand views every month. Okay. They had a problem. I'm like, hmm that and, is you know so the whole thing about talking to your customer first. Yeah. So we didn't just go and start building stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, so we went yeah. through the process. Right? So we spoke with the customer, allowed them to let us understand what their process was like. Um, we actually like sat down there, you know, watch them do it, take the paper claims, verify the claims, vet the claims, yeah. the entire process, the entire pipeline. And someday, I think, I don't remember how long we spent building the MVP, but we eventually made an MVP. I made them test it. Oh. And before we knew it, like in two months, we're having numbers increasing, number of claims growing 10%, 20% every month, every month. And we're like, okay, I think we just found something that works. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. That how, how important do you think your background, right, as a doctor, hmm. um, you know, which is an entirely different conversation again, hmm. right? Um, but how important do you think it is in, um, you know, in, in in being able to execute 
or you did a curiosity because I, I think that in a, sometimes we get lost in engineering or in, in coding that we mm-hmm. forget how important domain knowledge is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It was important to be honest because um, we got to a point where aside just collecting these claims for the insurers, we had another idea. The claims have medical data in them. Okay. The work that the insurers do to make sure that the claims are accurate usually requires them to carry out clinical vetting. So they get medical people Doctors, nurses. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah, to sit on these claims. So a typical health insurer in Nigeria, maybe in other parts of Africa, which is the way it is, has a room of like five doctors, 10 doctors, 10 nurses, depending on their size. Wow. Looking at one claim at a time. Wow. So as a doctor, if I'm working in an HMO right now, I'm going to check, oh, this person was treated for malaria. Mm-hmm. Which drugs are given to him? Did they give him drugs for hypertension? If they gave him drugs for hypertension, I strike it out. It's not allowed. It's not, oh, wow. Because... That's how it works. Yes. Because the hospitals want to get more money from the insurers. Uh-huh. So they give them more expensive... Oh, my God. This so, is... so they create fraudulent claims, wow. which was how we went from just claims collection to fraud, waste, and abuse management. So we help the insurers detect fraudulent claims and ensure okay. that their claims are not wasted. So what I was actually even trying to explain was that there is a clinical knowledge that is involved in that process. So a doctor actually needs to look at the diagnosis yeah. because he's a doctor, he knows what it is. True. And you give a certain drug that doesn't make sense. And I'm like, bros, what's going on? Why Why now? How far? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Strikes it out. The only problem is that they have to do this at scale. Yeah. And when you have humans doing things, people get tired, people get worn out. Sometimes they are, oh, just go, just go. Let's just approve it and move. And you start having claims that should not be paid being paid yeah and they start losing money they start losing money exactly so we built a feature or we'll build a separate product on top of our claims collection system which we call detection what it does it's that same thing so what a doctor would have done to check the diagnosis and compare with all the treatments that we're giving we build a product that does that automated automated entire process and obviously to do that you needed someone who understands what they do yeah right? so my knowledge of medicine was like just made it super easy that's crazy that's crazy. I can imagine um, myself, <laughs> if I were trying to execute a product like that, mm-hmm. I'd probably have to like call all my medical friends <laughs> that I've not called in years and just tell them, I've been thinking about you. I just, you know, uh, <laughs> I just said I should and call. they'll know that something is up. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's super important. So, yeah. the, the, the main, you know, topic for what we're discussing today, mm-hmm. of course, which I think we've been in the lineup is, um, you know, from engineer to leader, right? How to make that transition a successful one. Mm. And you've been on both sides of the divide. Yeah. Right? Um, so what was it like being an individual contributor? That is like the best day of your life. <laughs> or like the best moments of your life. Really? The moments all you have to do is be a contributor. A lot of people disagree. Well, so that, that also brings us to different kinds of engineers. Yeah. Because okay, I think I'm jumping, but one of the things we have to do is understand the kind of engineer you are dealing with in the team mm-hmm. if this person actually loves being a contributor okay. or this person wants to go into management and leadership and yeah. dealing with people because some people have this mentality that the ideal path for every software engineer is you start off being yeah. an intern yeah. a junior intermediate team lead team lead uh, maybe you then become an engineering manager yeah someday become a CTO that kind of thing yeah, like yeah. everybody has that idea that, uh, not, so many people <laughs> for real I, I agree with you and it's, it's not always the case exactly um, 
So what kind of engineer were you? Were you a mobile engineer uh, from uh, back in? Postdoc. Postdoc. Oh, goodness. I think I've, I've probably tried my hands on every language that existed while I was learning. Okay. Because I know while I was 12, so when I was 12, I started doing Flash, Macromedia Flash, which is action script. By then, I wanted to make 3D games, so I had to do Java because I knew I couldn't do pure 3D in action script. I did Java. Okay. But I got pissed with Java. I was like, this thing is stressing my life. Let me try C, <laughs> C++. And I was like, okay, who sent me this? <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 I need this yeah. no more. I went back to Java, but I was like, no, nah, I mean, I can't deal with this for the rest of my life. Uh, so I had to let Java go and be like, bro, just go. Yeah. And then I settled with um, Python, thanks to Blender, Blender 3D. Mm, okay, so yeah. I had to touch a little bit of Python because Blender was built yeah, on Python yeah, and you had to script in exactly. Python. And then from there, and it was like, I need to host my games, right? I've made a game now. I need to put it online for people to play html okay javascript yeah server side php was the easiest okay so like i went on just learning every single thing i needed to put my game out there as far as i was concerned yeah database learned it mysql sql server i learned all of them just for the sake of building wow the game inside so full stack i did mobile apps yes you know i can still do it if i need today yeah any framework can pick it up overnight yeah yeah, I, I think I went through a similar cycle through different programming languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would say it's really helpful, yeah, because it's all kind of the same thing, just yes. expressed in different exactly. ways. And so as you go through different cycles, it deepens your knowledge more, right? And I, I really appreciate, I mean, at the time I didn't, mm-hmm. but I really appreciate the fact that now. I did. Yeah, now. Um, but at the time when you were in IC, yeah. Did you think it was the easiest job? No, of course it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't an easy job, right? Yeah. But the difference is there is this isolation that you get to have. Yeah. Where From every all, other thing. Exactly. All that matters is what you do, what you deliver, your role. Mm-hmm. All right. I need to build feature X. Yeah. I need to make it work. Make it work. It works. Woo! I've won. Move the card. Deal yet. Progress, code review. To done. Review. <laughs> right? Um... But it's a totally different ball game when you have to start dealing with people, when you have to manage the team. Yeah. When you are now responsible for the team. Yeah. Because it's like an entire paradigm shift. From- let, let, let's talk about that transition <laughs> a bit. I mean, because I think that's the meat and potatoes of this conversation, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, the transition from being just okay, not just. <laughs> yeah, not you're just. trying to not oversimplify that. <laughs> yeah. So the transition from being an engineer. Right, mm-hmm. an individual contributor to being someone who is now, you know, concerned about people, right? Their output, you, you're in charge of them. Because a lot of days, even as a manager, I had myself going to review PRs. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of it, you're like, this is not what you're meant to be doing. Get off, get out of here. Right. But it's just that reflex, right? So, how mm-hmm. do you go from being someone who is, you know, focused on the code? To someone mm. who is focused on the people, how how did that transition happen for you? Was it a smooth mm. one for me? If it was smooth, man, I really don't know if I have an answer to that mm. because um, it was a rocky ride. It's it's kind of challenging. Yeah, when you are fixated on a certain way of doing things for a larger portion of your life, yeah, and all of a sudden you have to start dealing with certain kind of things. You know, start dealing with managing people to do what you were doing mm-hmm. and making sure that they were doing it up to a certain quality. Yeah. As you are used to doing it, 
Otherwise, what is the point of you being there? Very key. Right. I remember my first hire um, in Curacao because when we started, you know, I was sole engineer, single engineer, yeah. built out MVP. We started getting clients and then I'm like, okay, I can't do this shit by myself. Yeah. So my first hire on his first day, he pushed to master. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, because I just noticed that I was getting alerts on our monitoring channel. I was like, what's going on? Did somebody just break? And then I went to beat buckets. Dude, you pushed the master. I was like, oh. It just dawned on me that, okay, that was my fault. Mm. Right? Obviously, he made the mistake, but that was my fault. I am the manager. It's my responsibility to make sure that the necessary controls yeah. are in place. People do not make mistakes they ought yeah. not to make. Right? And I was like, am I going to have to deal with things like this for the rest of my life? Right? So, the transition had um, different stages for me. Uh, so even prior to being in Curacao, prior to founding Curacao, there were other things I did that involved working with people. Yeah. And I would say luckily for me, those actually gave me some insights into leading people. You mm. know, so a lot of stuff from charity organizations to fellowship on campus, you know, all that stuff. And I'd actually done a couple of gigs with guys where yeah. I had to coordinate the team and make sure we all delivered. But it wasn't the same thing. Yeah. Right. So I went from the stage where you are like almost micromanaging mm-hmm. because you don't want your guys to mess yeah. things up. Yeah. So yeah. starting to give some leeway, understanding that, okay, how would I feel if I was not being micromanaged this way? Like, I don't like anyone breathing down my neck. Right. So I shouldn't do that. Um, so I went from that step to slightly giving some freedom and learning that I needed to create systems, I needed to create processes that make it possible for people to actually get stuff done and aside just creating processes you also need to be able to keep an eye on things so like yeah we know what we're going to do for the week all right let's go and build it and i assume that dude you're going to build it you're going to build it right like i don't have to tell you i don't have to monitor you to make sure you build this shit but it's three days in that's a no good and like uh, ceo is like dude how far is that thing ready and i'm like i'm trying to be ready I just go check my guy like Alpha. Uh, it's not. Right. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> so the fact that I had to start tracking people's activity, keep it mm-hmm. tabs on them, ensure that they are doing what they ought to do, was something I had to realize. I'm like, okay, yeah. not everyone can self-manage, so you have to make sure that people are held accountable, deliver yeah. what they need to deliver, when they need to deliver. Yeah. And then from there, I realized, okay, you need to make this thing measurable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you can get guys to do stuff. You can let them know what they need to do. Yeah. You can let them ensure that they do it. But then you also got to measure. Yeah. Um, how efficient is it doing it? How long does it take? Are we shipping the right quality? Yeah. Are we going to be able to do certain sizes of work with our current pace? Yeah. Um, so it's been from, it's been different stages. And I can't say I've been like, I've exhausted the pathway yet because yeah. I'm still learning. And I'll say I've gotten to the point where I take teams as my responsibility. And um, I'm trying to avoid saying that I still love coding because mm-hmm. I still go and code. I still code. Like, you can't even <laughs> take that away from me. I still go and check the hours. Yeah. I still code whenever I get a chance to. So there are some. Um, but I would say that from being an individual contributor to being a manager, a major shift that happens is that you stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about the team yeah. and ensure that the team is delivering value efficiently. So 
the only sad part to this is the what's it called the dopamine boost you get when you complete a task is no longer there it's no longer there and you're like okay so the team delivered this thing all right exactly what's next that's 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 such an important thing right there is that feeling of um today was a productive day that you get from being an engineer right when you take that feature this is something that's blocking the team you you punch it you Mm -hmm. push it right Mm -hmm. it's done it's working the users are happy absolutely you go out, you're telling her, oh, I had a productive day, I had a wonderful day. As a manager, you kind of never know. Yeah, you never know. That kind of is... <laughs> you're, able, you're, able, you're trying to make it sound nice. You yeah. never actually know, to be yeah. honest. Right? You never really know. What I learned, what I got to figure out is if you have your eyes on the right thing, you know what you're supposed to do as yeah. a manager. Mm-hmm. So while I was having that problem with um, not being able to tell if my day was productive or not productive because I probably spent it looking at an hiring pipeline in meetings with boring clients, um, looking at maybe drafting up some boring documents or something yeah, or trying to inter- interview some people that felt like, without, you know, dude, you shouldn't even be called an engineer, <laughs> right? Um, I have a day full of activities. Yeah. And at the end of it, I feel like I've done nothing. You've done nothing. But I'm so exhausted. You're, you're sitting in meetings and meetings and meetings, right? And you're you're writing documents. So it got to a time for me where I would write my to-do list and I would write the technical tasks and mm-hmm. write the administrative tasks, mm-hmm. you know, the documents I had to write, the meetings I had to be in. And guess what? I would do all the technical tasks first. <laughs> <laughs> you know I would keep on when it's time to do the administration I say okay you know what this one can hold on yeah. you pick up another technical task yeah. so you just want to keep going in that direction and yeah. it's, it's it's such it's such a transition to make and I think that people don't like speak enough about how much you know how how how, how difficult it is to make this transition because mm-hmm. it's 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 um it's even more of a mental transition than yes. anything else yes. right Absolutely. so at a point I had to see something go wrong right like with with with, with the work you see yeah. um you push the wrong code i could see the error mm. but then i had to tell myself you're not going to fix it mm. right so i had to call the dev get him on a call and say this is what went wrong now go fix it mm. all right and getting to that point wasn't no it's not going to be easy <laughs> I, I can imagine what it was like <laughs> i, I can imagine wasn't. yeah it wasn't um and i think the, the, the balance between and you spoke about something um, lightly, you know, but the balance between ownership and oversight, mm. right? You want to give ownership, you want to give autonomy, but then you want to maintain oversight, Absolutely. right? Because you still take responsibility for outcomes, yes, right? Yes. How do you how do you balance that? Mm. That's a tough one, to be honest, because if I think about it, um, I understand everyone's capabilities on the team. Yeah. And so um, we know that they are tasks there are things to be done that require higher levels of you know oversight than others yeah based on complexity based on kind of experience that's required to get it done and all so i would would say that from the standpoint of delegation there is a way i assign tasks that i feel i really don't need to monitor this Mm. someone anyone on the team can get this done right i just assign it all right i know you guys can get this done what i even do most of the time is i just ask on slack who wants to take this up? And the guys are like voting, me, 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 me. <laughs> okay. Anyone face really? to pick. Yeah, I do that a lot. Okay. I Because I, I know, yeah, it's important, but the chances of things going wrong with that task are very low. Yeah. So I just let it be in the wind. Anyone who picks it, picks it. And I probably don't even need to check the PR, obviously. Yeah. 
guys can review their PRs. So based on the complexity of work, of work I'm yeah. able to delegate, you know, to those who I need to manage less and those who I need to manage more. And the oversight thing generally, I like to make use of the tools. Right? So mm, okay. Obviously, we're all used to boards. Yeah. Right? So I had to come up with a mental framework that by a certain time of the day, I should have ensured that everything on blocked column, because you have a blocked column in case your task is blocked, put it yeah. there and put a comment, let us know why it is blocked. By the end of the day, there should be nothing on the blocked column. Mm. So that if anyone is blocked, I know why they are blocked and they can be unblocked, right? Everything on PR stage, by the end of the day, needs to be cleared out. Obviously, I'm not going to review all the PRs. Yeah. I'm probably not even going to review any of them unless I'm in a very good mood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need to make sure that guys have some free time to review PRs. Right? Okay. So that is another like process that I have a mental frame about. Right? Mm. So um, sometimes when things are yet to be released, okay. I have to set up a framework that, all right, guys, once we get to this certain stage, once we have tasks gone from the PR stage to our development branch and we think it is fine, they've passed all tests, someone on the team should always prepare a release. I don't have to come and tell you guys to prepare a release. Let's make it a standard procedure, right? So twice a week, someone is always checking, okay, do we have things that are ready to release? I make yeah. a release, right? So because things are moving, I use our tools to monitor and I can see that things are moving in the right way. Mm-hmm. So the moment I realize that we have more things stuck on the left yeah. than things on the right, I know there's a problem. So I need to now come in. But if staring at the board, the processes that have been set up, move code reviews, move things to release, are all working, then I know that, all right, I think there's peace, there's calm. I mm-hmm. don't need to be too panicky. Otherwise, you know, it could be a, a chaotic situation having to dive into every single thing yeah. every single time. I don't know. So yeah, I think that's how I, that's how I maintain the balance. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So less of engaging with developers directly and more of setting up systems. Yes, yes. That allow you to know and what's going on. Obviously, you stand up. Stand ups help. Um, stand ups help a lot. Even though I got to realize that stand ups can become deceitful in a way, mm-hmm. because everyone has come with this mentality that I just need to state what I'm doing, state if I have a blocker, yeah. state what I want to do next. But sometimes people don't really review what is actually going on. What's, what's going on. It, it, it's like a ritual we need to fulfill, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's just fulfill the ritual. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I've thought about it so much and sometimes I ask myself, how, you know, how can I make stand-ups become something that people love coming to, people mm-hmm. actually want mm-hmm. to come to, you know, people look mm-hmm. forward to. Um, because um, at the end of the day, everyone wants that's feeling of community, yeah. right? Every engineer, right? Yeah. Even everyone that tells you, I just want to feel isolated. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to be on my own and mm-hmm. all. Everyone feels that isolation, especially with remote work, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is that standoffs and engineering meetings sometimes feel like judgment day. It feels like judgment day. So you don't even want to come. <laughs> right? And so when I think about it, I think about how can I improve this you know, meeting, how can I create this environment where people feel like I want to go to this meeting? Yeah. You know, if this meeting is not holding, and I, I think I succeeded with that, mm. uh, yeah, after a while, but if this meeting is not holding, people are actually reaching out, why is the meeting not holding? Mm. I want to be have some things to say. Yeah. Um, one of the ways I found that, like, I found out to work was actually, um, after a while, 
Um, so we had this like engineering meeting, right? And then we had the um, engineering all hands. We we'll call it the engineering all hands. It's something that held once a month. Mm. And at any point in time, mm-hmm. I can DM you and say you're leading the engineering meeting next week. Nice. Right? Nice. So, yeah, it made a lot of people become more involved. Right. And and during those engineering meetings, and these are not stand-ups, mm-hmm. um, we had this thing, um, we had this um, presentation times where, for example, we had one person who is like the lead for the backend team. The, okay. So we have kind of sub-leaders who mm-hmm. make presentations during those calls. So for that presentation to be accurate, you have to liaise with your team member. So it was it was a lot of involvement, yeah. right? And I think that that brought, you know, that brought that kind of environment I needed yeah. um, to a very large extent. But yeah, so from your experience, if you, when you look at your team and you, you want to, um, you're trying to identify someone who would make a good leader, Right. I mean, that was someone, that was something I built intuition for over time, mm-hmm. you know, by um, seeing people make bad leaders and seeing people make good leaders. Right. Right. Uh, you, right. You're looking at someone who, and this is a guy, I, I think this guy would make a good engineering manager. Yeah. Yeah. But what's that thing you look out for? What's that yeah. thing you see in people that makes you? Oh, yeah. So um, the major thing I tend to watch out for or that gets my attention is someone who's able to hold up our culture. Hmm. So, um, I've noticed it among some of our engineers. There are certain things I do yeah. to keep the team running. Okay. And some days I'm unable to do them and one of the engineers is doing it. I'm like, oh, it's nice. Nice. Uh, so there we have a guy, I call him a monitoring guy because the moment there's an alert on a Slack channel for monitoring um, exceptions and failures on our platform, he's the first person to check it okay. and try and debug it. Even without ask, telling or mentioning it to anyone. Right? Nice. Once he checks that, if he realizes that he doesn't understand what the cause is, he escalates. And I'm like, okay, I know I probably mentioned this, that everyone should do this at some point. But yeah. he took it as his responsibility to always do that. And I'm and, like, and that's not his responsibility directly. That's yeah, everyone's... well, of course, it's everyone's job yeah. in the entire team. I mean, it's our product. We all manage this thing together. So the moment we notice a failure, whoever is free at that point in time should jump at it. But then he's always the first to jump at it. He's mm-hmm. always the first to escalate when things arise. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, this is a good quality. Right. Another person is the kind of guy who makes noise whenever he notices that PRs <laughs> have not been reviewed. <laughs> it's like, guys, we have pending PRs. What is going on? And yeah. I'm like, that is good. I didn't have to come and remind them to check their PRs. Good. Because we set an agreement amongst ourselves that no PR should stay more than 24 hours. Right. So we don't want our code review times to ever get into the following day. And someone who is able to bring up that culture again. Yeah. So I just want out for those that hold up our culture. That hold up the culture. Those that like maintain that. the standards we set for our, you know, the way our code should be written, our code style. Yeah. Obviously, some things can be done with tools, but there are some things that require humans to still check. And um, yeah, those are the things I watch out for. So I don't end up going into all the details of Yeah, no, all that, of them. That, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So have you had you know, people who, um, who you've ever spoken to about like moving up the ladder, mm. right? And and they declined. Well, um, and I'll try decline, maybe not. Okay. But in terms of their interests, I've seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have an engineer who all he says is, uh, I just want to write the best code I can write forever. Bro, yeah. And sometimes I'm like, okay, so 
Yeah, you're getting better at coding. Are you not thinking of maybe trying your hands on a little mm-hmm. team management? It's like, no. Mm, I'm enjoying coding. Yeah. <laughs> I want to learn on that language. Yeah. Like growth for him is learning more languages, learning more tools, being better at them, getting more depth. Yeah. So that kind of person, I wouldn't force leadership on him. Right? That's that's what I have other team members who that can fit are him. thinking about becoming yeah. leaders someday. They've even asked. I think it's it keys very much into what you what you said earlier, yeah. right? Yeah. About the stereotype around engineering pathways, yes. right? Absolutely. Um and so how is the engineering path at Curacao today designed? Do you have um, a, a path for more technical folks, mm. you know, who wants to stay technical, right? And a different path for people who want to go into management? Yeah, so to be honest, I wouldn't say there is like a, you know, well-standardized path or structure. Okay. Because, yeah, we're a startup, right? We yeah. focus on building, building and getting things out. But I would say that what the path look like looks like right now is such that... Almost everyone has to become a leader at some point. Yeah. Now you might not have to become a managerial type of leader, mm-hmm. but you need to take responsibility of something. So even if you do not want to become an engineering manager, you could stay as a team lead and be in charge of the be in charge of the team technically wise. Right? That so, makes sense. Um, from being a senior engineer, let's assume, yeah, yeah, you're a senior engineer, you just love to code. Yeah. You like the process of making sure you're in charge of shipping things. You don't yeah. want to have to do one-on-ones or do any of those boring stuff or be in any of our boring meetings or talk to any of our clients, you know, and bore yourself out. You can be a team lead, right? A technical team lead and stay there. That makes sense. So that is how I like make that um, leadership thing available yeah. for everyone. So you want to become managerial? Okay, yeah, we work together. Yeah. You don't want to get managerial art. Handle your team technically. We'll do the rest of the stuff, but you ensure that the technical work is done, right? Yeah. So that's a dichotomy. I mean, I, I think that that's that's really important, and you know, um, emphasizing that mm-hmm. you know for the engineers. Um, one of the things I had to do my very early days at Keeper was like actually before I even hired my first engineer mm-hmm. was to plan out a pathway. Wow. Yeah, um, because I had worked in teams where. I didn't see a pathway, mm. right? And in teams where I saw pathways and I and I kind of saw the difference he made, mm. right? Because people could now walk and build their career towards a direction. Because it's not just the it's not just um the fact that, hey, you know that you can move from being um a senior engineer to a tech lead, right? But you see that there are clear cut requirements, mm. you know that needs to be met for you to become a tech lead. Mm -hmm. And I think it also helps with retention in terms of talents because it's like, I'm about to become a tech lead in this company in the next three months. And then there's this other company trying to push me. me. Then I'm trying to wait like this. I mean, if I go here, Mm -hmm. it might take me longer to Mm -hmm. achieve that or or stuff like that. And I I think it really helps. Yes, Um, it does. Yeah, creating creating that pathways for for your engineers. But I'm but I'm curious though. Yeah. You 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 had not hired any engineers. You were thinking about this already. Yeah, <laughs> because um, okay, so I think why this ha- why this happened for me was that um, before Keeper we mm-hmm. had Africave, right? right? I remember um, all we did at Africave was help other companies source for talents, right? Mm-hmm. And so we saw talents churn. At companies, mm. right? We saw reasons why some companies retain the talents we mm-hmm. hired for them, mm-hmm. um, and so 
I, I hired a lot of engineers for other companies, right? So when it came to like doing that for what we were building. Yeah, yeah it made sense. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of um, residual knowledge to mm. lean on and nice. design that. Yeah. I think I'll come pick your brain a lot of things. Because <laughs> sure. you've hired lots of engineers. Yeah, and hiring sure. engineers can be goodness. Sure. I mean, I, I, I literally, it got to a point for me where I... I, I come into an interview mm-hmm. and five minutes into the interview, I probably tell the other guy that he's not going to be a good hire. Mm. Right. Um, and it's, it's not by any kind of genius. It's having built the intuition over time. Yeah. You've had a lot of things mm. um, because I think building a good team starts from hiring. Yes. Right. I see it as an obligation, as a responsibility, as a leader of the team, to right? To protect the, right the internal team yeah. by bringing in the right people to join them. Yes. Right. And, and, and this is so important because I think it leads me right to my next question. So yeah. as a leader, how do you maintain your team's, you know, motivation? I mean, the going gets rough and it gets tough. Yeah. Right. So on those days, on those, you know, tough times never last, tough mm-hmm. people do this. <laughs> Uh, how do I maintain the motivation? Yeah. I honestly even wonder if I have a how. Okay. I wonder if I do. But what I realized is people like to be where they are taken care of. Hmm. Or where they feel like they are taken care of. Because, you Okay, know, that's a good... That's an important distinction. Yeah, that's perception that distinction. and reality. Should the engineers hear this? They understand what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> because it is true, right? Um, obviously, we can't out-compete some Silicon Valley companies. Bruh, like, bruh. We can't, we can't, We can't compete with kind of offers they make and stuff like that. But um, there is a touch you can give to your team hmm. that makes them realize that, okay, this man or this person or this company has my interest at heart. To a certain extent, obviously, won't come and make your bed for you and yeah, pat you in the back or you know, help you make whatever. Uh, but there are little little things that happen on a day to day basis. Um, a simple example, which is probably said very casually but makes massive impact, is praising the team outside the team, outside the team, yeah, yeah. um, and not revealing their flops, yeah, outside the team, so protecting the team, exactly. So. Engineers make, make, make a lot of mistakes. My goodness. It's part of the job. Yeah. Like sometimes something's going to production and I'm like, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. How did this happen? How did this happen? Like, how could no one have seen this during code review? Yeah. But um, obviously, to the rest of the organization, we have to do firefighting, right? Yeah. And after we've done the firefighting internally to make sure that this doesn't lead to anything catastrophic, there isn't anything else happening outside that makes them demoralized. Mm-hmm. Rather internally, I make them realize, all right, guys, you guys fucked up. This is what you did. You guys messed this up. But, you know, it's part of the job. We win, we lose sometimes. We do sometimes correct. Sometimes we break things, right? So there is that. Um, so what I was saying was, little things like this, right? Praise them outside. If they do something really cool, announce it, you know, just like the old company know that they yeah. have some superheroes in here that are doing good stuff. Um, small things like um, someone who does exceptional yeah maybe even as simple as on his PR he does something really nice on his PR the code is really clean I'm gonna announce it to the rest of the team like yo guys who has seen this guy's PR today good stuff I remember there was an intern that joined us a while back and um, because there was a time I used to tell the guys like guys listen when you're making your PRs 
make it give as much information as possible yeah. for the reviewer so that he doesn't have to be asking you questions. Yeah. What PR is meant to do before you can then review it. Some guys will do it, some guys will not. But just give the review an exam. Do you get like, but then we had an intern. The guy would describe, like, and I'm like, ah, what's going on? I had to take screenshots mm-hmm. of the description of his PRs. I'm like, guys, look at this. Oh my God, I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. You get it, right? Yeah. And I tagged him. I'm like, look at what this guy is doing. Thumbs up for him. Like, everybody be yeah. like this. So he's an intern, but here is a CTO hailing him when there are other more mature engineers in the company. Yeah. I can imagine how he feels about that, right? Um, so these are some small, weird ones I've mentioned. Other times when the engineers do not know the conversations that are being had, that happening behind doors. Um, obviously, you know, the way this thing can be is that non-technical execs can always feel like engineers are not doing anything. I think every founder I have spoken with who is not the CTO has a certain impression of engineers that they are just wasting time. Man, you don't want to get into that conversation. <laughs> that's that's another that's another episode. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> Because I know I, I was still speaking with some fathers the other day, and they're like, How do you deal with your engineers? I was looking at them like this. Yeah, bro. Like, what's the problem? You know? So I try to protect them from that, from those conversations that happen. And sometimes they realize that some conversations have happened, but the way it was framed for them actually puts them in a good light. So they realize that there's someone who is actually speaking on their behalf when they are not there. Yeah. And it's, I feel like it just makes them feel comfortable mm. so aside not you know revealing their flops and all that but knowing that there's someone who actually has them in mind who is rooting for them all the time within the team outside the team yeah who ensures that you know they're taken care of like whatever small way possible these things have contributed a lot um to making sure guys are motivated and obviously sometimes work can go a wall yeah intense deadlines guys we need to do something overnight we need to do something rash that we've never done they would happily do it like i've never i've never had a time where i had to like cajole anyone into going out and beyond right because aside the fact that they know i always go out and beyond yeah like they know my work ethic is like off the charts i'm actually trying to stop being a workaholic I tell them make sure you sleep at night, but at one a.m. they see that I'm online on Slack. <laughs> and uh, some people are creating PRs at two a.m. I go in the DM, yeah, I go and sleep. Yeah, but I'm still up by three a.m. Yeah. Right, so it's it's just a thing of like feeling comfortable. So it's not even about money. Money helps. Everybody yeah. has good money. Yeah, but I think that psychological safety yeah creates a bigger factor that helps people stay motivated. Yeah, and um, that that's where I think about it honestly. Man. There's so much packed in what you just explained. So much. Yeah. I, I I think that one, um, I can liken this to the analogy of, you know, um, rich parent, poor parents, right? Mm. Or like um, a rich parent and a not so rich parent. And yeah. um, for some of us, like, I, I think I grew up in what I would call an average family. Mm-hmm. Um, but your your parents care for you in such a way that even though they didn't have the world to give you, you knew that they really cared for you. Yes. Right? And and so we don't need to be the fang, right? We don't need to be the Apple, the Microsoft, exactly. and so on, okay. for our engineers to know that we care for them. Exactly. With the little that we have, 
we can truly care for them. Yeah. That's the first thing, right? The second thing is to take out from here is a fact that a lot of people in the process mm. forget that engineers are human beings. Yeah. All right. I've seen this happen so many times. Mm. And it's all about let's get it done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, bond a candle. Yeah. And and I think that this is such an important trait to also look out for in someone who is going to be a leader, an engineering leader, right? Someone who can, like you described, mm-hmm. protect the team. Yes. Right? Someone who can um, really, really apply empathy in dealing with issues, mm-hmm. in dealing with people, absolutely, you know, in executing what they need to do. And that's such an important skill set, mm. right? I, I've seen it in a few engineers mm-hmm. and straight up, I've had to like get into meetings. I'm like, guy, I think you're going to make a solid engineering manager. I mean, I told an, um, one of my engineers that um, sometime during a one-on-one, and he almost became emotional. <laughs> 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 you know, but I was, I was like, no nah, man, you're gonna make a really good engineering manager. Mm-hmm. And I, I can I can say it tomorrow. I think he's gonna make a great one. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, you have like you've you've really pointed out so much. Oh well. Yeah, in what you, oh, well. you just explained, yeah. I'm glad I, I th- it. I think it's I, I think it's super important, like for real. Mm. Um so a lot of people today, all right, are, are navigating these waters, all right. Um I want to go higher in my career, right? Mm. Um, as an engineer, as a technical person, I just want to keep coding. I want to just stay technical. Um, but then it seems that the only way to go higher is to become a manager. Is to become a manager. Because that's all, those are also the guys with the spotlights. Mm. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's, it's that thing you you know everyone is just thinking how do i do this how do i stay technical but you know what i'm going to become the technical kind of manager <laughs> yeah. you know try finding ways um and I, I honestly i think i shared this with you um when i reached out first for this episode i currently do not think that we have a lot of like purely technical role models true right especially true. the african tech ecosystem yes and that's something that we need to address because if we can have more and more leaders who stay technical, mm. right? Then we can have even more and more people who Find aspire to be leaders, but then, you know, know that they can stay technical. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know, like, what do you think about this? Yeah. It'll actually be very interesting because yeah. I personally still think about it. I'm like, so if I wasn't being, if I wasn't doing CTO team, CTO work right now, yeah, what would I actually be doing? Like, and in my mind, I was like, well, I'll be a senior engineer now. I'm like, <laughs> Okay, yeah. yeah, so senior. And then you hear found two with funny titles like principal engineer yeah. and all that stuff. And when you come down to the fundamentals of it, sometimes there's really no difference to it, right? So it's been nice for us to actually find a way to make it possible for people, generally, engineers generally in multiple organizations, to have a sense that there is a responsibility, there is a role I can attain that allows me to stay technical. Yeah. But it's also leadership at the same time. Yeah. And it's respected, is recognized. Yes. Yeah. And I think um, what happens is this, is that guys in open source mm-hmm. are the ones that tend to achieve this. Hmm. I mean, guys who work on open source projects that have gone that popular. I mean, Taylor Otwell, um, Evan Yu, guys like that, like because they made this 
open source projects that everyone is using. We yeah. know about them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in my mind, I know I was thinking about this one time. I was actually, I started doing open source. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you check my GitHub, it's practically empty. There's nothing there. Whoa. Like, yeah, it's yeah. that bad. Because uh, everything I've done yeah. all through my lifetime has always been a project for a company, a product for someone that needs to put it out there. Yeah. I never really got the time to, you know, like do open source projects or play around and put it out there. And I'm like, yeah, so that means no one actually knows that I can write good code. Mm-hmm. So if I want people to know that I can write good code, how do I do I it? I do it. <laughs> so I was also stuck in that, in that quagmire. And I, maybe it's something we should take up as a project, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll definitely be interested yeah. in, in, in something like that because I, I think it's it's important mm-hmm. um, that, you know, uh, people are also recognized for um, their technical excellence, yes. right? Beyond just um, managerial excellence yes. or, you know, people who are excellent as business people. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, and that's also part of the reason why um, I started this whole podcast, right? Absolutely. Um, I think that that that's the you know the if we are talking about um, Curacao, the business, mm-hmm. the solution today, mm-hmm. we should also have the spotlight on the people who are building the solution, right? Yeah. Um, I don't even know if a lot of people today know the city of Open AI. Mm. A lot of people know the CEO, right? A lot of people know Open AI, but who knows the CEO? She's a lady. Wow! Okay. I don't, I, I, I'm I mean, actually even surprised now. Like, oh, you're surprised? I, I actually, exactly. I was thinking about it. And I can't put a face to she's to female, that role. right? Like, and I'm not even sure a lot of people know her, mm. right? Um, and I mean, and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing intrinsically beneficial about the spotlight. You get what I'm saying? Like to general public. But if we, if doing that can help inspire a lot more technical people, a lot Come more out. builders, right? Then definitely it's worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely worth it. And I, we think that, I, I definitely think that um, a lot more engineers need to understand like that these transitions are possible mm-hmm. moving from just being an IC, right? To becoming a leader. Yeah. And knowing that, hey, in being a leader, you don't have to trade off your, your skill or your love for yeah. doing the dirty work. Yes. Yeah. Being in the trenches. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, so finally, what 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 are the if there if there were three things you had to you know to, or maybe two I don't know how mm-hmm. many it's going to mm-hmm. be but if there are a number of things that you are going to say to someone today who is you know preparing for leadership who maybe has been handed a new role oh you are the new head of engineering oh you are the new tech lead oh you are this you are that mm-hmm. right what would that be mm, amazing. I wonder if I even have anything solid that I can count. Because <laughs> it's like being thrown into water yeah. and told to build your life rafts with mm. things floating around. Because no one ever gives you a training. No one yeah. ever gives you a material. Like, okay, True. welcome to Engineering Manager 101. 101. This is what you need to do. You ain't going to get that, right? Um, so what I would tell someone who finds themselves in that situation is prepare for a paradigm shift. Yeah. You need to prepare to adjust your mental frame to how you perceive work because work has changed yeah it is no longer commit git push bug test it is no longer that right um what you might even find yourself trying to do is trying to repeat the same thing with people but people are not machines Mm. people Mm. are not robots it doesn't work that way and personally one of the challenges i also had or maybe still have is the fact that because of our geekish nature we tend to 
relate with people in a very logical manner. <laughs> so, like, when people come with emotional problems, you're like, dude, I don't understand. You look fine. Everything is okay. You cannot state a problem. Oh my God. I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, you don't have a problem. You know, someone is coming you, lashing out, um, ranting, and in everything the person has said, there is no problem. So what am I supposed to solve? Like, um, a problem solver, right? So you bring an equation where everything, there's no obvious problem. Yeah. What am I supposed to do? Right? And I can imagine that many engineers come from that kind of background, they have that kind of mental frame. So there is that effort in being able to prepare yourself that this thing I'm going into is yeah. totally different from what I'm used to. And my first recommendation is you need to go and find materials, man. Like, mm. read, get, get books. Okay, maybe books might be too much work, but um, just read up, watch some videos, right? Yeah. Join a forum of, you know, engineering managers, engineering leaders. Uh, I know a couple of them, CTO Crafts, well, those yeah. ones allowing only CTOs and engineering managers, but yeah. I think there's also tech lead, tech dev. Yeah, there are a couple of them online yeah. that you can join and you find guys in similar positions who are just going into the engineering management or leadership um, role. Yeah. And you can learn from them because one thing that I find is that it's a very lonely role. It is. Very lonely role. Um, being a CTO. The higher you climb. Yeah, it's the more lonely it gets. Right? So other VPs in the company might have colleagues, but you'll be alone. So yeah. find people you can connect with who are in a similar situation so you can learn from them. Um, pick materials that would help take you in that direction yeah. and prepare to change your mind about everything you've known about work. Oh, but that's the good things already. <laughs> okay okay <laughs> all right let me let me end it there that's definitely that's very solid that's very solid i totally agree with all of those um so at, at curacao today are you are you hiring <sighs> would i say we're not hiring we're always hiring uh, <laughs> i know we're currently trying to hire some qa engineers okay uh, we're also trying to hire some full stack engineers just a okay. few so but yeah we're hiring all right so um if people are trying to apply where do they go to uh, it's on our website. So there's a careers page on our website okay. that has, you know, the JDs and then the application forms all right. you can fill and all that. Uh, all right, guys. So if you're interested in applying for the role at Curacao, please go to the website and visit the careers page. That might be your 2023 testimony. <laughs> Send me money. All right. Thank you so much, John. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. I mean, I've learned a lot and I'm sure that everyone here has learned yeah, so much. I've learned a lot, sir. All right. Still very Thank you so much.